Have you ever had a dream where you, in your dream, you did something that was awful, evil, shameful, something that in your dream couldn't be undone? Now, you really don't have time to think about what you're doing in a dream. It, it, it happens. And then comes the, the feelings. Even in the midst of the dream, when you've done something you, you know you shouldn't do that couldn't be undone, you, 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 in your dream, you feel these feelings of guilt and shame. It's been done. It can't be undone. Your, your brain quickly moves in your REM state of sleep to the fear of getting caught. And you, you, you start dreaming about like getting out of it, hiding it, running from it. What have I done? Why did I do that? I, I can't believe I did it. At this point, your dream becomes a nightmare, right? And then you wake up. Oh man, the relief, right? The sweet relief when you realize it was a dream, like waking up never felt so good. You have this brand new start. The relief is palatable. The, the act of your dream erased. You didn't do it. You're free. This is what forgiveness feels like. Now let's shift into the real world. Have you ever done something where you longed for that kind of forgiveness? And what did it feel like for it to be forgiven. Maybe it was a debt. It's something we've been talking a lot about in this current moment, debt forgiveness. Maybe it was an act. You did something violent to another person. Maybe it was a word, a harsh word, an angry word, lots of words. Maybe it was gossip, lies, slander. Maybe it was more along the lines of hidden things. You cheated on something. No one knows. You were never found out. Maybe it's internal, like feelings you held on to, hateful feelings, bitter feelings. Or maybe it's a vice, an addiction. And you long in all of that, these places for forgiveness. If you could just go back. Now this morning, I want you to think for a second. Think, feel. Is there something you're holding on to from the past that you wish could be undone, wiped away, forgiven and forgotten? What are you holding on to? What are you avoiding that needs forgiveness? Now, to be human and be a sinner means doing something, many things, regular things that require forgiveness. And the good news this morning from our parable here in Matthew 18 is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is preaching, is a kingdom about forgiveness. That's point one this morning. The kingdom of God is about forgiveness. Our parable is prompted by the question from Peter about forgiveness. Peter has already heard Jesus tell us how to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's just heard Jesus say that when one is lost, that the good shepherd leaves the 99 and seeks out that one, that one that might not be forgivable. 
He's heard Jesus teach on how we deal with grievances, the grievances we have against each other. So he asks, how often will my brother sin against me and I must forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, when he says this, he's actually being quite generous. The, the teaching of the day in rabbinical code was to forgive three times. Three strikes, you're out. So when he says seven, he thinks, man, he is being wide open with this. Right? He's beginning here to even understand the character of Jesus and his kingdom. That, that when he says seven, it's actually more generous than anything he's probably accounted, uh, encountered in his life. But it also shows that he doesn't fully grasp the extent of God's love. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. Are you like Peter? Do you want to place some sort of limits on your forgiveness? Maybe you're still generous seven times versus three times, but it's also in acting in how you approach forgiveness. I've spent time counseling different couples in their marriage marriages, and this is often an underlying question. How long do I need to put up with this? Now, often it's in relation to some quality or habit, some inability on the partner to stop doing things, to do something different. It can also be some sin, some sin that keeps happening, and they, they come into this counseling moment, and they're so angry over it, and they wonder, is there an end or is there an out? It's also what we navigate as parents, right? The game of blame and offense, of how much and how long, the game of exacting fault. Like, I don't know how many times I've called my kids to forgive their siblings and say sorry only to be met with, but they don't or they didn't. Or why should I when they don't? Right? Peter's question is a question that haunts us. Now let's zoom out on this for a second. If you forgive, one side says the oppressor will maintain power over you, and so you can't grant them forgiveness. That would be evil. Or the other side, we, we can't possibly go out into this cruel world that snatches our rights and powers away with winsome compassion. The cultural moment demands something more, something less forgiving. Both sides say we, we, we must be unforgiving to our opponents. Why? Because if we aren't, something will be taken from us. And I want you to hear that because that's water for us right now. And this is an extension of Peter's question. Now imagine being a Jew in Rome, your land is occupied by a foreign power and to start forgets, talking about forgiving one's enemies. The kingdom of God is about forgiveness. And this is why when Jesus says to Peter, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. What's 70 times seven? 490 times. And what's Jesus actually saying? Forgiveness is complete. It's always. It's full. The way that it matches the fullness of offenses. Jesus' point is that if we are still counting, we're not forgiving. Jesus' point is that the kingdom of God is about forgiveness. And in saying this, he is saying something scandalous. 
And I think it's easy for us just to breeze past this parable and say, of course, but then keep score of our offenses, carry grudges, hold on to bitterness in our hearts for years, decades. It's why we rage at our political adversaries. It's why we develop all sorts of ways to reject forgiveness, ways to be like our kids when we make them apologize, say the words with our mouths while the abacus of our minds is moving the tally markers over. Habitually, not forgetting what's been done. What if the kingdom of God really is about forgiveness? So he gives the parable. The first thing Jesus wants us to hear is the condition of the servant. He says in verse 24, and this is point two, we need forgiveness, that the servant is owned 10,000 talents. Remember what we said a few weeks ago. The talent was the largest monetary measurement used in ancient Israel, and a talent represented a lifetime of income. So 10,000 talents is 10,000 lifetimes. A million dollars certainly isn't enough. If you've read the statistics of what it costs to raise a child, a billion, maybe more. To put it in perspective, ancient historians tell us the entire Roman province of Palestine in the years of Herod the Great produced 8,000 talents in taxes. So this servant owes a national debt. Our servant is in such deep trouble that his wife and children are being sold off along with him and all his things. The debt is destroying him and it's destroying everyone he owes. We need forgiveness. Now let's stop here and feel the weight of that. If you've ever been in a debt, a heavy debt, what does that debt do to you? It causes worry. Anxiety. You, you wake up in the middle of the night burdened by it. You scheme and strategize ways to get rid of it. You dream about the day when it's gone. You feel shame about it. You don't think you can talk about it. Now, let's take it a step further. What about a hidden sin or a hidden offense, something you've done that no one else knows about, and yet it's been done against them? The weight and the burden haunts us. You do mental gymnastics to throw it off, to forget about the weight, or maybe even coping through means of overworking, overdrinking, overeating, seeking out escape in fantasy and risk-taking behaviors. It creates in you the unrelentedness and your hatred of the sin so much that you hate anyone else that struggles with the same thing you're struggling with. You have this rage that oozes out of you everywhere, anywhere that that sin that you struggle with touches. You aren't present. You can't be present because to be present might be to be found out. So you resort to saying, screw this. I'm just going to get whatever I can, however I can, whenever I can, in whatever ways I can. You see, Jesus wants you to see that the kingdom of God is about forgiveness, but it's also for the servant a picture of our hopeless condition. Friends, we owe God an infinite debt. He's our creator. And if he made the world and everything in it, he made it good. And we've come in and spoiled it 
with sin and evil, then what that sin incurs is a deep moral and spiritual debt. If you were to go, I mean, I don't think it's happening right now. I actually think they changed this to something about climate change. But if you go into Union Square, at least I, when I went into Union Square in New York City, there was in the square a national debt ticker. Every second showing how much our debt is increasing as a nation. This is us. We're all this servant. And so Jesus is asking us to look deeper. Jesus is asking ask us not to abstract the story out of our own lives. Even the most moral people have an insurmountable debt facing them when they stand before a holy God. That is what sin has done to us and in us. Sinners are, are insolvent debtors. The reason is because sin is not primary about what we do or do not do. It's about who we are. Sin isn't just a behavior. It's a condition. We accumulate debt against God because the disposition of all our hearts is to build our lives around people and things that are not him. The Bible calls this idolatry. And very moral people, along with very immoral immoral people, all of us orient our hearts towards worshiping other things besides God. And then we take our own life and think we can construct our life however we want to construct our life. And every moral deed that we do is for us and our glory. For moral people, it might even be that their own, their own my, my morality that they idolize, their own standing in their church, and the respect they've won by their behavior. Ironically, it is their my morality that separates them from God. It's their morality that hides the real God from them. The point is, the state of our hearts, no matter who we are, is much uglier than we are prone to expect. And the Bible paints a vivid picture. Our condition is hopeless. Our debt against God is incalculable. We need forgiveness. The servant recognizes that he's in deep trouble. He approaches the king, have patience with me. I will repay you everything. Just give me time. Oh man, don't we do this? We think we can fix ourselves if we just had enough time. I don't know how many times I've thought about my weight and my body like this. I'm going to get it to work out. I'm going to have the physique of Trevor Riggs. I can undo what I've done. I think this is the dream that goes with the nightmare of what we've done. We think we can make atonement. We think we can undo it. We think we can then merit forgiveness with enough time and effort. But our debt is a gazillion dollars. But that doesn't stop us from thinking this way. Our national debt ticker, $31.38 trillion, increasing $45,000 every second. How many lifetimes would it take to fix that? To undo it? You see, we radically miscalculate what we owe and how we can pay. As my buddy Luke Evans says, this is about as anti-gospel as you can get. But this is what our hearts do. 
You know you're functioning this way. How? When your attempts at obedience are driven by guilt, not joy. You know you're functioning this way when you hide your sins that have not yet been exposed. You know you're functioning this way when you aren't serving gladly, giving generously, but begrudgingly or not at all. All of those and many more are signs that we are trying to transactionally deal with our debt before God. Signs that we think that somehow we can get ourselves out of our debt. But Jesus says that we're like this man. We can't repay the debt we owe. All we can do is rest in his forgiveness. Now, notice what the king does. He doesn't even answer the proposal from the servant. And this is point three, God's forgiving love. He doesn't enter into a deal. You pay what you can, I'll cover the rest. Those are our deals. We think we're being gracious when we give them, right? He doesn't put him on a timeline where the debt hangs over him for a lifetime, but says it can be forgiven in the end. The text actually says, the king has compassion on him. This compassion used by Matthew describes Jesus when he has this deep, guttural sense that moves him to action. The king's compassion moves him to completely forgive the debt in its entirety, notice, with no conditions. So I want you to sit into that. You're an insolvent debtor. Which means you have no way of dealing with your debt. And God forgives the debt entirely. $31.38 trillion. And the cost to you is nothing. The servant didn't work, his schemes are left unanswered. He was forgiven. Now, Think to that dream. Isn't this what we're longing for? Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World. In this story, Hemingway told the story of a father and his teenage son. The son had sinned against his father, and and in all his shame, he ran away from home. So the father searches throughout Spain for him, and he couldn't find the boy. Finally, he's in the city of Madrid, In a last desperate attempt to find his son, he places an ad in the daily newspaper. The ad reads, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana at noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. The father prayed that maybe the boy would see the ad, and maybe, just maybe, he would come to the Hotel Montana. On Tuesday, the father, in Ernest Hemingway's story, arrives at the hotel. He can't believe his eyes. A squadron of police officers has been called to keep order among the 800 young boys named Paco who have met his, have come to meet their father in the front of the Hotel Montana. 800 boys named Paco hoped forgiveness was for them. How can the king do this? Well, according to Tim Keller, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do anything to marry it, then it isn't mercy and forgiveness. And that mercy and forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. The cost here, paid by God and granting us forgiveness, 
How can he do it? Because the life of his own son, Jesus. God forgives our debts in sending Jesus to pay them off as our redeemer. He, he gave his own son to redeem us out of what? Debt, bondage. What kind of king pays the debts of his faithless servants? What kind of God delivers himself up to die in the place of rebels? The God of our Bible. The one true God. And it is what makes Christianity so uniquely glorious. It's, it's not about how we need to be compassionate, forgiving, gentle people. It's about a compassionate and a forgiving, gentle God who died for uncompassionate, unforgiving, proud people. God graciously provides. He forgives our debts. And that is meant to change us into forgiving people. This is why love and forgiveness are bound together, according to Dan Allender. It's God's consuming preoccupation to destroy evil and sin through the power of his sheer goodness made known through his perfectly righteous love Where? In the cross, where mercy and justice meet, and God's love is displayed. The cross, Allender said, is like a brilliant conundrum. It's the height of glory, what appeared to be the death of God, the the shaming of the prized only begotten Son of the Most High, the, the dissolution of the Trinity was actually the most glorious interplay of justice and mercy worked out in perfect harmony by all members of the Godhead. Your forgiveness required such a magnanimous act. The cost was paid by God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this leads to the last point. Our response then is to forgive. The second half of the parable is the punchline. If you have been forgiven, Peter, then you forgive. The servant leaves the king, goes out, he runs into one of his colleagues. That colleague goes to money. We're told that it's a uh, uh, hundred denarii, which is a hundred days' wages, three or four months of pay. Our forgiven servant grabs the man violently, chokes him, demands, "Pay pay me what you owe me. The servant pleads, just like he pled. Same words. Have patience with me. I will pay you. But the unforgiving servant refuses, has him thrown into a debtor's prison. Again, to restate the obvious, the servant was owned a minuscule fraction of what he himself owned the king, and yet he refused to forgive. He refused to show compassion. The the unforgiving servant did not see that our guilt before God is unendingly greater than any other person's guilt can be before us. There was no change in him as the result of the grace he had just experienced. And it is tragic, right? And that's really what the end of the parable is is leaning towards, the tragic end of people who have had such a debt forgiven and yet will not forgive. Why is it hard even though you know this about you, even though you know this about the story, why is it so hard to forgive? To patiently forgive, according to Keller, is to bear suffering rather than to give it. 
when we can't bear to absorb the cost. Now that is seen, remember, in a God in Jesus who bore the cost for all of us. And then the the reply of gratitude is to then be forgiving people. That's what the parable is moving the disciples toward. That's what he's moving Peter towards. Because you've been forgiven, will you forgive? How can we do that? Well, first, because you've been forgiven and you know you've been forgiven because of Christ on the cross, because of something you didn't do, that is to enact, to enliven us. In fact, what Robert Capon says is that we experience in this a death and a resurrection. This cost of forgiving someone else requires our own deaths to ourselves. And when you forgive, it is an act of resurrection. It is resurrecting life oozing out of you. Christ absorbs it. He absorbs yours. And as we receive this, we are empowered by God and the gospel and the spirit to do the same. Realizing the depth of our sin enables us to forgive. Now let me make a differentiation here for just a second. To remember that forgiveness is different from reconciliation. Because some of you, by your parents, by a family member, by a neighbor, you've experienced unspeakable violence against your body, shame against your person. How can you forgive that? The gospel remains the same. That you can only forgive that because of Jesus, because of the change that Jesus has done and enacted in you. And reconciliation is different from that forgiveness. So you're open, you're ready, you're willing because of what God has done for you to forgive what's been done to you. Now this is good news for victims and perpetrators alike, by the way. But reconciliation is something different. It's an acknowledgement, it's a repentance, it's a restitution where someone acknowledges their sin what they've done to you, and they seek out to be reconciled. Forgiveness is a willingness to offer that forgiveness and to wait for the Lord, for that person to repent, make restitution, and be reconciled. It's hard, y'all. And yet, the warning of this parable remains. If you don't forgive, if you aren't willing to forgive, do you know forgiveness? Now, let's tease this out and we'll finish. What about the little things that irk you? Things irk you all the time. Somebody says something untimely, hurtful, Intentional or unintentional. When they do, what do you do? The gospel tells you that God forgives even your hurtful, untimely, wrong-headed words. It also cocoons you in grace so that you can go and seek out and let be known what wrong's been done to you. 
the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teases this out. He calls us to be a people who instead of like talking about someone else and about their sin, goes to that someone, makes that sin known, and seeks reconciliation, forgiveness. Willing to forgive, goes to their neighbor. You, what you said to me hurt me. Gives the neighbor opportunity to respond with repentance so the rec- relationship can be reconciled. We would rather avoid all of that. We say we're forgiving. We're, we're bearing the cost, right? We're absorbing the guilt by not saying anything. But then what happens? We hold a grudge. In our world, there's a therapeutic reason for forgiveness, right? Like, you should forgive because it's like, it's good for yourself. You can do it strictly for your own mental health, your own freedom, your own peace of mind. Now, now, true Christian forgiveness can bring those things, but it's as byproducts. The ground, the motive of biblical forgiveness is to honor God, to forgive as he's forgiven you, to bring about change for the common good. You should want the wrongdoer to repent for his or her sake, for God's sake, and for the sake of possible future victims. The therapeutic move of self-interest won't really work there. If forgiveness is about making you happier, well, Lots of people find nursing a grudge happy. If you believe the gospel that you're saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God and you still hold a grudge, at the very least it shows you that you're blocking the actual effect of the gospel in your life and you're kidding yourself and perhaps believing the gospel at all. We can't love friends without forgiveness. And we can't live without it either. I mean, think about this. Forgiveness is knowing what you know and loving. To love is easy when the one that you love does nothing that needs forgiveness. But we show love, the love of God, when we know that they've hurt us, we experience this and still move towards them in forgiveness. Instead of holding a grudge, instead of trying to bury it so that grudge continues on, we move towards them, letting them know the offense so that this can be dealt with and forgiven. It's the essence of love. Forgiveness requires this humility, knowing yourself, knowing your debt. And remember what grudges lead to, by the way? Revenge. There's nothing perhaps more enjoyable than revenge. You've heard the term if you're a sports fan. It's his revenge game. When he plays his former team after getting traded or released, we have revenge stories like the Count of Monte Cristo that then is reenacted as John Wick. Much of our modern storytelling camps at revenge. Revenge involves getting back what we lost We hold on to it for so long, and then we relish taking it away. Vengeance, then, is always excessive, according to Keller. This is the point of lex talionis. Why did it say a tooth for a tooth? Because vengeance for a knocked-out tooth always wanted more. It always wants to knock out all the perpetrator's teeth. Vengeance tends not not only to be disproportionate, but to be surrounded with hateful, caustic, cruel language. Our whataboutism, friends, in our moment, 
I don't know, can't tell you how much whataboutism I read this week. It's all grounded in vengeance. It leads them to dig in, oppose all your efforts to put things right. The perpetrator rightly sees you not really after justice for their sake or for future victim's sake or for truth's sake or for God's sake. You are after vengeance for your sake. And you want to inflict suffering on them. To forgive is to reject any vengeance or payback for the wrong. And it's to act as if the wrong never happened. You can only do this if you truly believe in the cross, justice and mercy meet. Now, I do think it's important to remember that there are boundaries. There are times by which we have been hurt. Like it doesn't mean when you've been hurt, you have to immediately trust someone. Trust does have to be re-earned. To forgive is to reject vengeance or payback. It's not to act as if the wrong never happened necessarily. If the wrongdoer hasn't repented, then you shouldn't. Make it easy for them to sin against you again. It's never loving to make it easy for someone to sin against you again and again and again. You must be open to rebuilding trust slowly if the wrongdoer shows what looks like genuine repentance. Now, every case is different. There is real egregious cases of abuse. It's wrong to insist the abused persons put themselves continually in harm's way. If you need help to think about this, Tim Geller has written a book on, called Forgive. Dan Allender and Tripper Longman have a book called Bold Love where they really try to tease all these things out. But I, want, I really hope you sense this. Like, this is a very, like, serious question of our day. And it was the serious question of Jesus' day because when Jesus rides in on the donkey on Palm Sunday, like, what do the Jews and the followers of Jesus, of Jesus and the disciples think is going to happen? They think he is going to enact vengeance. He's going to bring it down on Rome, on those who have occupied and hurt and harmed them. And when he marches in, that's why they cry out, God, save us, save us now. Save us from the oppressor now. And what does Jesus offer them? He offers them... uh, a king who dies on a cross for the oppressor and victim alike. And that's a hard word, friends, in our moment. And yet, it's the beautiful gospel that's offered to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, you've said, do not overcome evil by evil but overcome evil with the good. We sit in that this morning, even as we consider what's happened in Tennessee this week and countless other places in our world. Help us as you call us into the good of forgiveness 
and to the good of seeking reconciliation with our neighbor and to the unlimited and unbountiful supply of forgiveness that you offer us in Jesus Christ at the cross and in resurrection. Help us to learn from people around us, communities that have continually forgiven. Let us seek those out. Let us read about them. Let us be changed and moved by them. Let us not forget that Christ has forgiven our 31 point whatever trillion dollar debt. Help us to forgive our brothers and sisters hundred dollar debts, thousand dollar debts, ten thousand dollar debts, hundred thousand dollar debts, one million dollar debts, whatever they might be. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.